you have a fantastic voice. If you ever want to do a career in ASMR, I don't know if you know what that is. But, uh, <laughs> no, I don't actually. <laughs> you check out ASMR. Isn't you that like will... people watch like people opening like like yeah, jars but, and and putting their the hands ones I like are the unintentional ones where people are talking just in a nice, calm manner. You have oh, a fantastic okay. voice for that. Welcome, everybody. I am Jason Trost, the host of the Business of Betting podcast. I'm really excited for today's guest, Sue Kim, who's the Managing Partner and Chief Investment Officer at Standard General, better known as being involved with Bally's. His name comes up a lot in the industry. He's been doing a lot of M&A. He's been doing a lot of moves in, moves in the U.S., and I, I can't wait to get his perspective. He's, he's very busy with all the things he's doing, and I'm really happy that you've made time for us today. So thanks for joining us on the of podcast. Of course, Jason. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So why don't we just kick off? Why don't you just introduce yourself in your own words, your background and, and what brought you to, to the sports betting industry? Yeah, sure. So my name is Sue Kim and I'm the, and I'm, I guess I'm wearing the hat of the, the chair in the Valleys where the represent the large shareholder, my fund does based here in New York, but been involved in Valleys and its predecessor Twin River for the past about 12 years or so, actually, as that company was emerging from a reorganization. We, we bought its securities as a private company, you know, over the first five years of that company, really where, when there was a single casino based outside of Rhode Island, you know, slowly but surely built up a position, uh, after about five years or so became the largest shareholder, joined the board. And then I became chair at the end of 2019. So I think I joined the board in 16. So I've been involved in the company's evolution, but also really in some ways, the evolution of gaming itself in the States. We went from a single casino to adding our second casino, which was in Biloxi, Mississippi in 2015. Um, and then, you know, fast forward a couple of years and we had four casinos, one we built and one we bought. And then, you know, currently we own 15 casinos. We're also in the process of buying or building two more, one in the city of Chicago, another one in State College, Pennsylvania. And, uh, but also at the end of 2021, we closed on the acquisition of GameSys or the fourth quarter of 2021. And by doing so became a major player in online gaming internationally. And the company currently makes a little more than half of its operating profits on the casino side in the U S and a little less than that on the international interactive side, but primarily not sports actually. Um, the way we came to sports is obviously in the U.S. online gaming regulations is sports led. It feels like there continues to be a federal prohibition, the Wire Act, that prevents inter intrastate gaming of any form. Within the state, sports betting is is now permissible in something like thirty five states or so. You know, so and that's important because that's really the entree to online gaming. Period. Just mobile sports betting. Just drop the sports and it's mobile betting or mobile gaming. And so, in you know, in North America, you you absolutely, you know, have to have a, a sports a sports strategy because it's a sports side market. So, just to get into a question, I've always been curious about. Maybe this is a little bit inside baseball, but Standard General is it a hedge fund? Is it private equity? Is it private capital? What what kind of entity is Standard General? It's actually, it's actually, we, we have both. We, we primarily set up as a hedge fund, but we also do have private drawdown funds. So the hedge fund does have the ability to do public and private. So, um, the largest investments that we have are public. However, we just have large positions in them. So it, it you know, because of our, 
sort of a sort of hybrid nature. We've had the flexibility doing longer term investments, public to private, private to public. And, and all that really comes from our heritage of doing long-term turnaround and distressed investing. That's the core of the company. And so, um, you know, you know, a position like Twin River actually started as a distressed investment and that over time slowly but surely became a, a, you know, a, a publicly traded company, but, you know, throughout the, throughout the period of time, we, we maintained our position as a larger shareholder and sort of like the, the sort of had a, a reasonable role in which, which strategic direction the company took. Got it. And so as a, as a hedge fund, you have outside capital. And yeah. I, I met, yeah. And I imagine you have a two and 20 fee structure or something similar to that. Similar to that yeah. What are the, are the assets under management public or is that private information? It's public. I mean, we manage about a, bill, a billion dollars right now. Okay. And so, I mean, that's essentially been your background. I was the last 15, 20 years is, is running this hedge fund. Yeah. Correct. And so what, how do you go from, you know, when I think of hedge funds and maybe this is naive or oversimplified, but I think of hedge funds more as having, you know, trading strategies, you know, long, short, you know, buying this, selling this, like to me, owning and selling companies is more like a, you know, it might be a oversimplistic model, but I think of like Berkshire Hathaway or, you know, some slow moving private equity companies. Am I, is it the fact that, I mean, hedge fund it's just sort of more the structure of the outside capital that makes it a hedge fund than necessarily yeah. the strategy. Well, I think you answered your own question. It is. It's more the structure of the capital than the strategy. This, you know, the, the catch-all hedge funds themselves have evolved over the years. I mean, part of it is just that we have actually a relatively old hedge fund. I've been up for you know, I don't know, close to seventeen years now, and I've been in the business for more than twenty-five. You know, it's really just broadly cast classed as alternatives, and again, we're more you know, situational or opportunistic than, than asset class driven. So we do, you know, we invest in both loans, bonds, and equities, and we're defined by the kind of situations we enter, which are trouble companies, stressed, de-stressed, turnaround, special situations. So, um, and, and the way that the, the securities that we trade to get there are less important than the, 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 the situation the companies are in. So. There aren't, I, I don't, I, I, I do think that there aren't that many funds like ours now around because it's part of it is just, we've just been around for a long time. So back then, I want to say that there was a little bit more flexibility and a little less. And as the business has grown, 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 I would say the categorizations have become a little more rigid. So we still don't quite fit into the classic categories just because we're so sort of old and grandfathered and sort of like the slightly older, more of a catch-all. But the, the one thing I just want to point out is that the public markets are actually longer term than private market investors. So so if you think about the economic incentives of a, any kind of anything, any, any kind of draw fund investor from all the way from early stage angel VC, all the way to straight, you know, LBO private equity, they you make an investment and then you don't actually, you know, cash out a fee until that not only that investment is completely liquidated, but that entire fund is liquidated. And so, you know, even though these funds have lives of, I don't know, seven, 10 years or something like that, the optimal time for a private equity, classic private equity investor to invest and, and you know, and monetize is about three years, actually, which is a long time, but it's not like, a, it's, uh, obviously, it's longer than the hedge fund that trades for a day, you know. Oh, I'm going to position this thing a week later, earnings, boom, I'm going to trade out of it. 
So when I hear distressed, my other misconception or conception is that distressed is high risk. Is that a fair way to think of distressed or is distressed has return profiles similar to other asset classes? And, and then my second part of that question is, do you have to have you know, high risk tolerance investors and LPs, or do you have the traditional blend of pensions and, and hedge fund pensions and endowments and things like that? Yeah, look, all, all investment, potential investments you know, live along a continuum of risk versus reward. It's not about high risk or low risk. It's about your ratio of risk to return, you know? So you can take something that's very low risk and get a low return, and that should be comparable to say something at a, at a medium risk, a medium return and a high risk and a high return. So, so, so first of all, every, every investment in the grand scheme of investment potential from, again, from treasuries all the way to, you know, commodities all the way to, to real estate, all the way to, to a venture growth investment, all of those live within the continuum of risk versus return. So, um, you know, a, assuming that they all have the right ratio of risk versus return, right? Then the only question is, you know, do they complement each other, supplement each other? Are they? And so when you when you're building a portfolio, you need to make sure that your 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 individual risk reward decisions do not correlate to each other. That's the slightly the most important thing, actually. So if you, which what you're trying to do when you create a portfolio, is to create a portfolio of uncorrelated risks returns that fit along that critique that that spectrum. So these are all the theoreticals. But look, when you talk about distressed and turnaround investing, there are certain risks that come with that, meaning at the end you have, you know, the business itself is at risk, right? So, so you just can't wake up in the morning and know that you've sold X amount of burgers and, at, you know, charge X fee for a software service or something like that, you know, you can't do that. But in terms of, but, you know, but the markets are efficient, you know, in terms of, of, of charging you, you know, what is that risk versus return ratio? And so, yes, if it's an amazing business model, you're, tra you're probably trading at like 25 times earnings, you know, more. And, and then your risks are different. You know, you don't have your risk of, um, of the underlying business. Your, your risk is more that like interest rates move 5% and you're, and you're, and you're totally screwed. You can swear on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Well, whatever. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, you go from, you know, 25 times earnings to 50 times earnings you know, just because interest rates moved, you know, three points and, 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 uh, and that had nothing to do with your underlying belief or analysis in the business. A distressed investment tends to be priced as such because the markets are generally efficient. So you're not going to pay for excitement. You're not paying for, so the one protection you have is, you know, we invest in things that are at actually very low multiples, you know, you know, five, six, you know, like just, you know, maybe less, maybe one or two, maybe, maybe as high as, you know, you know, you know, nine or something, you know, and, and that's a reflection of the rate of return that you think theoretically you need to invest in a situation that has those kind of variables. I mean, look, I've been doing this for 25 years, so I don't really know anything else in that way. Right. I think it's crazy to speculate on interest rates or, or commodities or, you know, or any sorts of things that you have no control over. To me, I am a believer that the risks that I, I take for myself and my clients are the ones that I have some modicum of control over. So look, I can make bad decisions and look, we make, you know, look, we, you know, we, we've made many a mistake. I mean, it's just a, the nature of investing is even if you're a genius investor and you're getting it right, like 55, 60% of the time, that means you're, you know, you're getting it wrong a bunch of times. You just have to make sure you're 
you're minimizing your losses when you get it wrong, you're, that you're sizing your winners correctly. There's lots of different ways to get from one point, point A to point B. You only get here if you, if you are surviving and delivering market or better return, right? There's nothing inherently more risky about a distressed asset because everything, Jason, is at a price, right? So if someone says, would you buy a building that's burning or would you buy a building that's brand new? And you're like, I will always take a brand new building. That's not actually true. The question is how much? So if somebody says, I will pay you a dollar for that, you know, I will give you a dollar for that burning building and you have a bucket, you know, of water and the building is just smoking, it's not really burning. And you're like, all right, here's a dollar, hold my beer, you know? And, and if you're, if you're saying like, oh, that's a brand new spanking building, but you have to spend, you know, a billion dollars for it, you're like, you know, is that without risk? I don't know the answer. You know, maybe, maybe, you know, there's a pandemic and then it's empty the next day, right? That, that pricing example really resonates with me. To me, that's the same thing with sports betting, where a lot of times people think about, oh, the Patriots are playing well, or the Patriots are not playing well. I like this better, don't like this bet. And what people don't realize is that every bet is worth taking it at the right price. Right. You know? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So it's, that's something that resonates a lot with me. So I kind of know you, I, I believe your position is chair of the board yes. of ballets, right? So, I mean, I kind of know you more as that title, like when you wake up in the morning, are you a hedge fund guy that dabbles in, in gambling? Or are you now a chair of a gambling company that also has a hedge fund on the side? I'm just curious how you internalize that. You know, Bally's is, I don't want to say about 20, maybe a little more, a percent of our assets. No, I wake up as an investment manager. That's my primary fiduciary goal. You know, goal. And I also serve as chair of, of Bally. So now that's a that's a that's a fiduciary role as well, but I'm a fiduciary to our own interests, right? Because I mean, nobody cares more about the where the shares and the values of Valleys goes than ourselves, and so we're completely aligned in that sense. And I don't even take a fee. So most directors take a fee. I don't even take a fee because you know I'm paid by my own clients if Valleys goes up. So really, part of me doing my job as an investment manager for Standard General is actually making sure that Valleys performs. There's no incongruence in that, you know, you just have to make sure that you don't spend all your time at Valleys or you don't spend none of the time at Valleys, right? If you're going to spend none of the time and you're going to spend none of your time, then you shouldn't be on the board. If you're just going to spend all your time, then maybe, you know, you should consider like, you know, just working on Valleys and, and have a single fund and not worry about the rest of your investment. So I, I think that there's a, you know, there's a balance. We've been doing this for a while. So, you know, I believe that we have some level of balance we've achieved, but it's dynamic, right? And I have to make sure that you know, I'm always getting it right every morning. How operational are you? I mean, I, I, I see that you guys changed CEOs not too long ago. Like, are you getting involved in the weeds of running the business or are you in a more more hands-off strategic kind of role? Look, we are we represent the largest shareholder. And, you know, I happen to also have a good relationship with the other large shareholders. So I represent all the shareholders, really. Like the role of a board is oversight and accountability. That's the role, you know, incentivization. It's like, it's not to do, it's to make sure that you have the right team that are doing the prioritizations that you've, you've laid out for them. So we try our best not to get involved in the day to day. Let me tell you, if your board is getting involved in the day to day, then something horrible is going on with your management team. You know, your management team should be operating so that you don't have to worry about you know, the day to day. And remember, 
this is not dissimilar to using sports analogies. I mean, like it's like the difference between a manager and a player, right? I mean, you can't, you cannot, you know, or a coach, you're not, you're not on the field. You know, you're actually not on the field. You choose what the plays are. You choose who, who plays them, who's on the field. So we choose who's on the field. You know, that's the role of the board, but we don't actually make, we don't actually play. Look, I mean, you know, you just talked about like, do we, we made a change? Well, we, yes, we made a change because, you know, a year and a half into our merger, you know, we, we looked back and we thought about all of the strategic goals that we set up to ourselves before the merger closed. And, and when the merger was announced before it closed, after it closed, you know, that's a two year period where we have a pretty good sense of, you know, what we accomplished and what we didn't accomplish. And frankly, we weren't happy. We didn't make enough progress in our North American sports effort. And that was for a multitude of reasons, you know, look, we, we are luckily the casino business that the North American casino business is running still on all cylinders. Luckily the international interactive business is doing well. Clearly North American interactive has been disappointing. We've lost, you know, a reasonable amount of money, but even more than the money we've lost, we've lost time. The net net of it is we have not been pleased with our, you know, North American interactive, you know, you know, outcomes and rollout and, and we're not willing to seed that business or keep doing it the way we've done it. And so we've, you know, we've restructured and, and I think, you know, that's not the last of it. And, you know, hopefully we'll get that position going in the right way. So if I could just pull the layers back a little bit, when I, when I, you know, I'm the founder of, of my company and, and there was two big things that I wanted to do with markets when I founded it. One was I wanted to use betting markets for public interest markets. You know, I, I, I found trading on elections fascinating and I still think betting markets are the best tool for prognostication of future events. Super interesting, but very underutilized in, in society. The second thing that was really motivating to me is the bid offer spread or basically the margin that the customer paid just to me seemed insane. I used to be a stock trader and, you know, we were fighting for pennies and then I saw sports betting and, you know, there's 8% transaction fee every time you're placing a trade. And I was like, who pays this? And it turns out a lot of people pay this and it's fucking insane, frankly. So those are the kind of like... those. Obviously, I wanted to make money. Obviously, I'm a capitalist and I want to build my business. But I had this really kind of intrinsic need to kind of bring my business hypothesis to the market to try to see if, you know, the market agreed with me is, is basically my what I'm trying to do as an entrepreneur. As, as, a, as a professional investment manager, your goal is to return capital to your investors. How do you layer on what you're trying to do with ballets? Like, if ballets could sell hamburgers and, and make a billion dollars, would you do that? Or do you have a very specific thesis with ballets of, we want to be the best at this. And this is not, yes, of course I'm trying to make money, but this is why I'm here. And this is why I'm spending my time on this. Yeah. I, I mean, <clears throat> well, first of all, if we can sell, make a billion dollars on burgers, of course we do it, you know, and there's, I don't think there's anything mutually exclusive about, about that. We do have a thesis in the sense that the ballets, is is i think the first company that is equal parts online gaming and physical game and we we set that up on purpose which by the way is a is a in, in some ways a sacrifice or a or a position or you know itself because remember the public markets typically like pure plays right and that's that's just a market you know theory that that look if i want online gaming i'll buy the online game guy and if i want 
you know, mobile, you know, physical gaming, I'll buy the physical game guy. So when we say, Hey, we're going to present the company that's half, half people are like, well, I don't like that, you know, cause I might have to be buying something I don't want. So, so we take a step back in the public markets, you know, to, to, to make that statement. But the reason why I think that's important is because I really truly believe it's just gaming. It's not casino gaming. It's not online gaming. It's just gaming. And, you know, gaming is a wonderful business. It's clear to me that, that casino gaming complements online gaming. It's not, it's not, you know, it doesn't cannibalize, they don't cannibalize each other, which is really interesting because most businesses that go digital see a decline in the analog, but gaming is not like that. You know, you can look at, you know, Jersey, Michigan, Pennsylvania, where you've had massive growth in online gaming and sports gaming, and yet. Casino gaming has remained relatively stable, if not, you know, it continues to grow. So just when you say casino, you mean in person, physical, physical gaming. Yes, exactly. So, so I, I think it's in the, it's a remarkable, now I see, I saw that and I've seen that's, that's, by the way, that's still playing out. And I think this was remarkable. I, there just are very few businesses. And remember, a part of it is I am, you know, this is the perspective I have of investing in things other than gaming. And the reason why I'm so attracted to gaming is because I'm watching this digitization of gaming, mobilization of gaming, the, 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 the removal of gaming or the delimiting where technology and regula regulatory advancement takes the limits from a physical play space thing to you could do it anytime on your phone. Um, and yet doesn't take away from the physical play space thing. You're, you're trying to make the argument that Bally's is the, the winning or your hypothesis is that the winning formula is to combine the physical and the online experience absolutely. in one. A absolutely. I see that there's no, I see that the two businesses are supplementary, you know, mm -hmm. not, not in any way antagonistic to each other, which is bizarre. It also symbiotic in other words. Yes. And it also takes a. Remember, casino gaming in North America is a GDP type business. You know, it's stable. It kind of booms and busts. You get a little bit of expansion, but in the end, it's just a you know, it's a GDP business, right? So now you layer in online gaming. That's not a GDP. That's a plus 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 business. And so, but the assets from physical gaming, including the brand, the customer base, the the interactions, the physical social interactions, you could only have at a casino. The, the destinations and the regional, you know, convenience, all of the assets of a, of a casino company, both destination and regional, your relationship with the regulators, the fact that many states, your online licenses actually flow through the casinos as incumbents. These are all, these are all important assets that casino companies can bring to the online game. They're not dispositive because obviously being an online player you know, gives you that nimbleness, that focus of, you know, that you, you know, that, that, you know, that, you know, can, you know, potentially lead to better outcomes, definitely in the short term. But we posit that these are not separate businesses. They're the similar, they're similar businesses and, the, and they will help each other, whether because physical casinos will help with the online, the problem of online, you know, customer capture, whether it's, you know, the, the online gives growth to a business that doesn't actually have growth. Um, they're complementary efforts. And I think that, you know, when technology catches up, which it hasn't, and we've worked a lot on this to really break down the barriers between online gaming and, and, and physical gaming. 
What do you, how do you see yourself differing from, you know, the MGMs and the Caesars and the Penn Nationals that, you know, have an offline online kind of approach to it? I don't see myself differing from those folks at all in, in the long run at all. I think everyone's going to come the same way. If I had to you know, pick through those, I guess it would be that, you know, uh, you know, MGM obviously has a JV for their business. Caesars owns it. And, you know, what's called that Penn does some, you know, it does a little bit of leasing and a little bit of ownership too. So it's a, it's a mix of the both. I don't think that, again, in, in any of those only differentials that we just have a higher percentage coming from, you know, current interactive revenues, in our case, internationally. So we probably have a different, we have an international event that those guys don't have. Although, you know, MGM and Caesars does develop outside the U.S. We have an international event and then we have a, we also have a, just, just a heavier owned, you know, it's called interactive event, you know, which is a little different. I mean, again, in Caesars has a substantial interactive effort, but at the same time, none of that's going to matter as much as, you know, the 95% plus of the operating profit that come from the casino. So, so it's just, it's just a matter of percentages, you know, like we, we, we have a higher percentage. So Bally's has been, at least the last couple of years, very well known for doing lots of acquisitions. You have Monkey Knife Fight and Betworks and GameSys. What would, with the lens of your hypothesis, if I understand you correctly, is that the marriage of online and offline is a good business model. Like, what role did your your acquisition strategy play in that? Well, I think that that's, I mean, you know, we wanted to own as much of the chain as we could have. That was our initial thesis that, you know, in the end, the, the, the percentage takes by the third party service providers would be so high that, you know, it would be hard to capture value of your customers. Remember you're generating the customers through your network. And then you, if you toss it onto your online business, but you don't control fully or has a lower margin, cause there's a lot of people that take from that chain, then you may never make money there. So. Our initial <clears throat> view was let's go and buy all the technology ourselves to be try to have a vertically integrated, you know, sports betting, free to play, you know, all you know, as as much as many as many many places we can go, knowing full well that we weren't paying full prices, you know, we're you know we were paying for what I think we're, we're to be you know generously considered like the kernel of something that we can build upon. We spent actually more money you know, in operational burn, developing, integrating these technologies and trying to move them forward last year than we spent on any individual asset. So, <clears throat> so we have, you know, just, you know, Valley Games has had, a, you know, you know, we've, we've cut a little bit, I think we're still over a thousand developers. Yeah. I guess one of the advantages of investing in public companies is that you, you can have instant liquidity, but one of the disadvantages is that your scorecard's public. So your Scott, your stock has gotten beat up a little bit, I think somewhat just because of, you know, interest rates and, you know, the macro environment has deteriorated, but also like the shine has come off a little bit in the industry. Granted, it was super hyped two years ago, three years ago for, for some good reasons, but the, the shine has come off a little bit. What's your, can you, talk about how you think about getting the share price back up because ultimately oh, that's that's your that's your that's goal all I care about. <laughs> just so you know that's all i care about i mean the strategy is a uh, um is strategies or tactics or decisions or you know people all that are inputs to getting the stock up that's the only output that matters yeah i mean look you know it's you know it, it, it's it's sort of interesting because again this one is one where 
you know, conceptually, you know, we don't have to go after North American tractor. We shut everything down and take every dollar we have to, you know, buy back stock and pay down debt, you know, return capital and, and, you know, the prices are so much lower and, and that's actually a pretty good move, but we're trying to be balanced, you know, there still is a bright future in interactive and in blending our casino to interactive. And so we're just trying to keep, you know, we're just trying to keep the balance between short-term incentives and long-term incentives. Clearly our stock is down, you know, look, it, it peaked at 70 something in 21 and now it's at under 20, you know, it's a joke. It's interesting because if at the beginning, at the beginning of 22, so last year, their stock was at $38 and it, it closed just under 20, I mean, that's so down 50%. The number that we had targeted for operating profits from the casino and, and the online casino, uh, online casino, we pretty much hit it. Had you told me in Jan 1 of 22 that I would hit the number or very close to it and, and our stock would they be down 50%, I'd be like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Man? You know, like our stock's already down from 70 to 38, you know, and that's what the market interest is. rates, man. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I mean, it does everything going who, on. Who yeah. knew they had that much of an effect? It's disappointing in the short term. It's disappointing for me personally, but, but, you know, we have the faith, right? I mean, we built this thing up from zero. Um, look, we built this company up from a company that was worth $300 million. And, and now, you know, our market cap's a billion bucks, you know, so we you know it's got, you know, 3 billion debts, it's worth $4 billion, you know, so so, okay, it was at one point worth $7 billion and it, it will, you know, we believe it'll get back there. So, I mean, I still like our cards. I like our team. I don't see anything that, you know, makes me upset, you know, because you're right. Yeah. If I did, I could just sell. You know? <laughs> so you mentioned earlier in the podcast, public markets hate conglomerates, you know, they like pure plays, which I totally, you know, think you're, you're nailing the, that the, then you're hitting the nail on the head in that one. So like. Have you thought about, you know, having separating the physical and the online business and, you know, sort of like, I guess like Virgin does, you have Virgin Galactic stock and, you know, Virgin X stock, like, have you thought about doing that to kind of? We look, we think about all things that are, that would be good for shareholders. Just because we were not able in that first sort of year or year and a half to execute on this plan of, of, of synergizing physical to online. That doesn't mean that that's invalid, you know, and I think we're still very early in that thesis. I think, I think you're not wrong that if we're wrong, just like we can buy businesses, invest in them, and then, you know, shut them down. If we feel like they're not working, we're not going to keep investing and we're not going to, you know, this is the same thing here. Like this decision is reversible. You're, you're pointing out easily reversible, you know, but. And sports bet. I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about casino. What's your view on sports? Is that is it a loss leader, or do you think that that should be driving revenue in its own right? Sports is is again our the first first lens by which we look at it. It's just an entree to mobile gaming, and in America, you know, since so many so many states are sports only, you have to be in sports to be in mobile gaming or be in gaming in that state or to have the first product that complements your physical gaming to that mobility. So we have to be there. Look, I, I am fully aware of the weaknesses of the current sports betting environment. You know, forget about the fact that it's super promotional. Forget about that for one second. That's just an early stage, you know, thing. But the, the business itself, you know, the money line, you know, that's a tough business. You know, it's, you're, it's a skill-based business. It's a variable odds business. It's hard to balance the action. You have offshore competitors that don't pay taxes. 
you know, it's, it's just a lot going on with that business that may never structurally be that theoretical, you know, high single digit, you know, it may never, may never. As much as we spend a lot of time and money trying to create a product that's, you know, me too, to the current, you know, generation of, you know, what I call, what I call sports bingo, you know, like, you know, if you think about, you know, there's, there's nothing really sport about this, you know, this user interface and experience, which is ours, this one happens to be ours, but it's not, it's like everyone else's, right? Like you know, this one, again, it, this is, it's, it's a bingo card, right? This is a bingo card, right? You know, this is not what's, this is, it, the sport is almost ancillary, you know, it's, you know, it's just a reveal, right? It's a bingo card, like a ball flopping up and say, you know, N24, oh, you know, like, you know, home run by, you know, like Aaron Judge, oh, you know, it's like, you know, it's not, it's, it's, I think that that interface will change in dramatic ways. And I think that we have an incentive to change it as much as anyone else does. So, so yeah, we're, we're, we're moving forward on that. Well, thanks so much for stopping by today. It sounds like you got 53 emails during the podcast, so you must be super busy and I really appreciate you stopping by. Okay. Before I let you go, what do you want to be when you grow up? What did I want to be when I grew up? What do you, you want to be? Oh, what do I want to be when I grow up? Wow. That's an interesting question. You know, again, when I was growing up, I wanted to be an astronaut. Obviously that that, that didn't work. I was good at heights too. So no, no. Actually, I ended up well, it's out. back in vogue now, so yeah, know. yeah, but but what, yeah, no, but not like that, not like rich, rich guy astronaut. That's kind of annoying, that annoys me. What do I want to be when I grow up? Uh, it's a good question. I don't know, I don't know. Honestly, I don't, I enjoy what I'm doing. It's, um, you know, I believe that it's, it's a real, you know, you know, it's interesting. We, we, you know, being in the business of turnaround, you almost have to have like this this belief that you can change the world as you see it, right? Because like the business is failing, right? Or like, it's just, no one likes it. And like, you just have to go in and say, you know what, this needs to change for X, Y, Z reasons. And you just impose the change on it. It doesn't always work, but when it works, it's just, you know, it's great. You know, it's very rewarding because you feel like you've made a difference, you know, like you've actually changed the outcomes. And so for me, I, I'm, I'm really, I enjoy what I do. I think, you know, in different forms, I'll continue to do this thing for, for some time. You know? So great. Yeah, we'll see. Well, yeah. Nailed it. All right. Well, thank th- you. Well, thanks so much. Thank you so much for joining us.